from the uh, prophet Jeremiah, the 18th chapter, will be the place of our text while you're turning to the prophecy of Jeremiah, which is right in the center of your Bible, really, if you have a concordance, the 18th chapter, verses 1 through 6. While you're turning to that, as you are aware, today is the last Sunday that we'll have the privilege of of the ministry of uh, Jim and Conchita. Jim is going to be the band director at uh, the director of bands at Wayland Baptist College in Plainview, Texas. And I know that we'll deeply miss them. But the ministry that, um, that anyone does is a ministry unto the Lord and that ministry never ceases with their absence really. I have that confidence as you have that God has a special person for us who will come and lead us in the same way. The 18th chapter of Jeremiah's word, verses 1 through 6. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I shall announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord, Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. A number of years ago, we were out in Santa Fe, and we went into this little pottery shop just to look around. And we observed a crowd of people gathered around, a man making a vessel on a wheel, a potter. He took a lump of clay and placed it on this wheel that was spinning. Uh, he kept spinning by pumping a pedal with his feet and keeping his hands moist and the vessel, mo the clay moist. He shaped a, an attractive vessel on that wheel. All eyes that day were upon the vessel except two. I was captured by the potter. He was a wiry little man with a leathery face and dark eyes that he kept attached, he, that he watched carefully uh, the clay. He was totally oblivious to our presence. Never once did he acknowledge that we were there. He was totally absorbed in his work. As we left the potter's house, um, I thought of this parable. And it just kind of came to me that day like the dawn of a fresh idea that every time I've heard, I've heard this text preached or preached it myself, the emphasis has been on the vessel, on the clay. We talk about the vessel that was farmed there by the potter's hands. The emphasis is not on the vessel but on the potter. It is not upon the clay, but the hands that molded the clay. 
it is not upon the pot but the potter. The focus of this parable is not upon the nation of Israel or anyone in that nation. The focus of this parable is upon the God of the nation. The parable was told in order that men might have a knowledge of God. And why are we here but to know God? And what is this eternal life that Jesus Christ came to bring? He said, this is life eternal, that, you, that men may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And what is the greatest aim to which a man might set his life to know God? And what is the greatest thing that ever happens to one, bringing life and peace and contentment and delight? It is knowing God. This parable was told that men might have a knowledge of God. Do you know God? Do you know about Him? What do you know about God? I want you to come with me this morning. I want us to look at one of God's pictures of Himself. There is, first of all, His preeminence, His sovereignty. God has a right to do all things. And so He says in verse 6, Don't I have the right to do with you, O Israel, just what this potter has done with the clay? because after all I am sovereign and the sovereignty of God requires his absolute freedom which means that God must be free to do anything he wills to do to accomplish his eternal purpose in every single detail without hindrance and God is said to have absolute freedom because there is no one or no thing that can hinder him or compel him or stop him. God is free to do what he pleases to do, always, anywhere, and forever. If this parable teaches anything, it teaches the sovereignty, the absolute authority of God. And it reveals a truth that we are... Uh, in in danger of losing that man has no right to complain to God whatever God decides to do with man shall a man challenge God you know the story of Job and terrible things came to that man's life and so the people in his world gathered around him to play what Hardy Denham calls the greatest game people play, that is the blame game, they gathered around to, to try to figure out who was to blame for what was happening to Job. And Job's friend said, now Job, you, we know that down deep inside of you there must be some secret sin. God's punishing you for this. And everybody had a reason for Job's problem. And even Job began to question God for what was happening to him. And then comes the 38th and 39th chapters of Job, read them sometime, a magnificent declaration by God of His sovereignty. He was saying to Job, now there's no reason for you to try to figure out why this has happened to you, for I am the absolute sovereign God. And then he asked the question, 
Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And Paul picks up on this theme in the ninth chapter of Romans and he says, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? God has absolute sovereignty. So that therefore man's right in the presence of God is to have no aim or claim or desire except to discover the claim and the wish and the desire and the will of God. Man has no right but that. Now I sense what you might be thinking in your mind. If God is absolutely sovereign, don't I have a right of my own? Don't I have a freedom? Don't I have a will? This parable must break down because the clay has no will. I have a will. God gave me one. This parable must break down because the clay has no power to choose and God has given me power to choose. What about the freedom of man? Doesn't that violate the sovereignty of God? What a question. Listen, there's a greater distance between God and man than there is between man and the clay. There's a greater distance between the infinite will and the finite will than there is between the finite will and that which has no will at all. So if the clay has no right to challenge the Creator, if the clay has no right to complain to the potter, then how much more do we have no right to complain or challenge God? He is absolutely sovereign and free and preeminent. He he has the right to do all things, whatever he pleases. But I have to add something to that statement, and it's this. He does all things right. Now, the principle of sovereignty can be a frightening thing unless one understands the person who has that sovereignty. Last week a man went berserk in Fort Worth, Texas and he took a gun and he went into this place where he was employed and in a barrage of gunfire he killed six people. One of the people that he killed was a Christian layman who was active in one of our Baptist churches in Arlington. You may have seen the interview with that man's wife on television. She said, when I heard my husband was killed, I got on my knees and said, God, if this is what you will for me, if this is what you've chosen for me, I'm not going to question it or complain, it, uh, complain against it. Now, even though my heart was deeply moved by that and went out to that woman in compassion, I'm not about ready to stand here and say that I believe God sends a man into a business to kill people in a barrage of bullets. I don't believe God is like that. Stephanie Powers lost two of her closest friends in a matter of hours. William Holden, intoxicated, fell in his apartment, cut his head and bled to death. Natalie Wood, intoxicated, fell off her yacht and drowned. 
Stephanie Plowers looked at a reporter nearby and said, Why would a loving God do something like this? Do you remember what the insurance companies call natural catastrophes? That's right. They call them acts of God so that tornadoes and floods and hurricanes that wreak havoc and disaster and death are called acts of God. A few years ago I preached the funeral of a little girl who died with leukemia. I heard three well-meaning people say to that couple in their grief, well, this is the will of God and we must accept it for after all God is free to do what he wants to do and I stood up in the pulpit at that funeral and said this is not the will of God for God doesn't go around causing the death of little children but his sovereign love is saying to us today Death will not have the final word. She's with me and you can see her there. To say God has the right to do all things, we must also say that this God does all things right. There is something else about this parable of God. Not only is he preeminent, but he's purposeful. The potter saw him work his work on the wheel. He recognized that the potter was not working at random. He had a thought in mind for the clay. He was working on purpose. He had the pattern of the finished product in his mind as he worked on that clay. So out of common clay, he made that which was serviceable and useful. It's a marvelously thrilling thought that God has a plan for each of us and He's not working at random as He shapes and molds our life. He has a divine plan for us. So that in the purpose of God there are three things. One, there is a design now the potter knew the plan for the clay and so he began to translate that idea, that pattern to the clay. Now the clay naturally was ignorant of the plan but through the hands of the potter he began to transfer his thought to the clay so that the clay became an expression of the potter's mind. And the clay gained from the potter and the potter gained from the clay. Now watch this. The clay was useless, just a shapeless form, had no real beauty or utility or purpose. But the clay plus the potter became something of beauty and use. It gained from the potter. On the other hand, the potter had a thought in his mind that nobody could see apart from the clay. So he used the clay to express his thought. And that's one of the deep mysteries of life. Listen to this. That God has chosen, has created us, has shaped us in order that we might be a medium through whom he could express the thought that's in his mind. 
We are his workmanship, says the Apostle Paul. That Greek word means we are his poetry. We are his work of art. That which God gives to others so that they can see the visible expression of the infinite thought that's in his beautiful mind. You and I can be expressions of God. Now no one can see the eternal spirit but God fashions us so that in us men can see the things of the eternal spirit. We can be expressions of God's mind and we gain from the potter and the potter gains from us the design and in his purpose there must be deference that is submission there are some things you won't find on the potter's wheel you won't find iron filings or chips of wood because the only thing that will take the shape of the of the potter's fingers are those things that are plastic and pliable and submissive. Listen to me carefully. If you are submissive to God, you can take the impression of the Father's hand upon your life. That's a marvelous thing when you see that. When you see people who are submissive to God and yield their life to God, to see the fingerprints of God upon their hand, upon their life, is a beautiful thing. The only vessel that is marred in the hand of the potter is the vessel that will not submit to the potter. There's deference. And in the purpose of God, there is a discipline. And so Jeremiah saw as the potter worked on that vessel, he saw the file that he used and the chisel and the hammer and the scorching furnace and he thought that's God and that's the way he makes men and that's how he molds Israel and that's how he shapes character he uses discipline and hardship he uses chastisement and affliction to shape and mold the character of men he uses these in implements of hardship to mold us. Samuel Rutherford cried, Oh, what I owe to the fire and the file and the hammer of God. Some of you this morning have felt the hand of God hard down upon your life, and that pressure has been almost unbearable. And some of you can testify to the file of God that he's used, hardship and discipline to, to polish away the rough places in your life. And some of you know the furnace of fire that has purified the silver of its alloy and impurity, the implements of God to shape us. And we chafe against these implements sometimes. And we wish that God would remove them from our life. And probably the biggest mistake any of us will ever make is the mistake of interpreting what is happening to us in light of our understanding of what is happening to us. For sometimes the things that happen to us seem like a terrible thing, seem like a hard thing, and they may be the greatest thing that could ever happen to us because they're God's way of dealing and molding and shaping our character. 
the purpose of God, the preeminence of God, finally. In this parable, there is the patience and the persistence of God. And the text says that when that vessel was marred in his hand, he made it again as it pleased him. He didn't give up. I suppose that there is no other parable that gives a greater picture of the indomitable patience of God than this. He could have said, this clay is no good. I'll just get rid of it. I'll get me some more clay and just cast it away. could have said that, but he didn't. I've never been known for my patience. I've I'm a lot more patient now than I was, you know, a few years ago. I can remember as a little kid trying to make one of these soapbox uh, cars, you know, they, they use in a soapbox derby, so I got me some wood and a saw and hammer, and I had some old wheels off of a wagon I had, and I set out to make me one of these soapboxes to, to, to uh, ride in. Now, the only thing worse than my patience is my ability to do odd jobs. I'm just terrible. I can hardly change a light bulb at the house. My wife got so disgusted with my inability to fix things, she got her one of these books, you know, that, you know, plumbing, and just started doing all of it herself. And she's great, and I'm, you know, I'm so happy about that. <laughs> you know, let her fix the leaking faucet. That's all right. So I got me all this. I got me some of this uh, wood and and these wheels, and I started to make this little car. And I got so frustrated. And so after a little while working at that thing in a in a tantrum like a child, I just I can remember I got my hammer and I just started smashing that thing to pieces. And then I got back and I just kicked it just as hard as I could kick it and just broke my toe. You know just busted it right half in two in a fit of anger. I can see God. No, I can't. Just taking planted earth, you know, in his hands and saying, I'm so fed up with you. And just in one sovereign, omnipotent thrust, just smashing it entire and hurling it out into endless orbit. But he didn't do that and hasn't, and won't. And this is what made this parable a gospel to Jeremiah, that God didn't do anything like that and doesn't. He took the same material and he started again. And the same material that was marred in his hands, he reshaped into a lump and put it on the wheel. He gathered up the fragments. And he said to himself, I can, I will, I must make something noble out of this yet. And he did. Aren't you grateful that God didn't give up on you when he should have? The record of God's word is the indomitable, indefatigable patience of God. He just doesn't give up on us. Hallelujah for that. Why wasn't Jacob just thrown on the scrap heap because of his warp and twisted ways? 
And why wasn't David just disowned by heaven after his dark and deadly deed that made his name a byword in the land? And why didn't God just cast Peter aside when he denied him three times? And why wasn't Saul of Tarsus, blasphemer and torturer, just blotted out of the book of life forever? Why not? Because there is nothing more dogged and determined, stubborn and persistent than the will of God that desires to save. Where would any of us be if it were not for the infinite patience of heaven? Where would any of us be indeed? He's just not defeated. He just doesn't give up on us. He just takes our blunders and our mistakes and our wrong choices and our rebellion and He just overrules them in this grace that is greater than our sin and He just keeps on coming back to us in patience and persistence. And this is what James Stewart says about the patience of God in his book. Listen to this. That does not mean that our mistakes and our sins are excusable and not serious. But it does mean that the grace of God is far more wonderful than some of us have yet envisioned. Far more resourceful and inventive. For you see it means that the person who believes in God, there is no such thing as an irreparable disaster. No discard that cannot contribute to the final harmony. No thorns that cannot be woven into a crowd. crown. No breakaway from the original pattern that cannot itself be wrought in God's skillful fingers to a new completed design. I'm here to tell you that God is the God of the second half. I was talking to Brother um, Doyle Bostick not long ago about preacher friend that we knew who has a who had some problems and heartache in his ministry and has a magnificent sermon I dug that out the other day found that thing he has a magnificent sermon called the God of the second half the first sermon he preached after all this heartache came to his life it is a dynamic thing for it says what I'm trying to say that it doesn't matter what you do to God he's not going to give up on you He's so patient and persistent that he'll gather up the broken fragments and if you allow him, make something useful in your life out of it. All you need to do is just surrender to him. Frank Pollard tells about being in Dayton. They were having a crusade there. And this blonde, beautiful reporter kind of said in a sneering way, what do you think God wants from us out there on that football field? Ethel Waters, who used to sing for Billy Graham, was there. She said, honey, you know, how she, you know, how she talks, if you've ever seen her on television, heard her tell, honey, God don't want nothing from us. He's got everything in the world. He doesn't need anything you've got. He's just trying his best to get our attention so he can say he loves us. And she reached in her purse and she pulled out a a diamond ring that had more carrots than a farmer's garden in it. And, and she said, Julie Christie gave me this diamond ring last week. Julie Christie that year won an Academy Award. She said, honey, Julie Christie has everything you think you need 
but she's miserable because she doesn't have Jesus. All that's necessary is for us to just recognize that God is just going to keep on keeping on until you yield yourself to His plan. That's all He wants. I tried in vain a thousand ways my fears to quell, my hopes to raise, and all you need, the Bible says, is Jesus. My heart was night, my soul was still, I couldn't see, I couldn't feel. And so to God I had to appeal for Jesus. He died, He lives, He reigns. There's love in all His words and deeds. For all, all, all a human being needs is Jesus. You've come in this morning to this congregation and you may be feeling that your life has no purpose or meaning. Would you put yourself this morning in the potter's hands and he'll transfer that marvelous design and will he has for your life right into your life have you come in here this morning your life is empty and without direction or meaning or purpose all you need is Jesus God's given you a chance a second chance for that to happen to you today would you bow your heads with me Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that we'll recognize your sovereign power and ability to save, to do what you want, to accomplish what you've planned. And I hope that this morning I pray that we'll recognize that Jesus Christ is the evidence that you've not given up on us. And I pray for man, woman, boy or girl this morning who has never placed their life into your hands, their hand into yours, that this morning you'll help them to see you have a marvelous plan for them. Plan that involves Jesus Christ at the very heart and center. And I pray you'll give us courage and faith today to trust Jesus as our Savior. Make our stand for him in this moment. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations looking this way. The first invitation is for you to come give your heart and life to Jesus Christ for salvation. Come trusting Him and Him only for your salvation. The second invitation is for you to come and rededicate your life to Christ or to come this morning to say, I want to place my life here on promise of letter. Join this church today. God leads you to do that. These are the three invitations. We'll invite you to respond as we sing, Have I no